0: Preaching is taken from Luke 21 today, verses 20 through 24. So Christ has exhorted his people with the coming of the destruction of Jerusalem that they, in their patience, their endurance, their bearing up, would possess their souls. Now he continues, verse 20. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written "...may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them which give suck in those days! For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, until the times of the gentiles be fulfilled as far God's word we're nearly 2000 years from the time which Christ spoke these words and close to 2000 years from the time when these words were fulfilled and it's easy for us to look around and to meet the acquaintance of other Christians and take it for granted that the church today is primarily made up of Gentiles. It's simple for us. Perhaps somewhere back, unbeknownst to us, there may be that we had a certain Jewish forefather or a daughter of Abraham as a great-grandmother of some sort. But the grand vastness of the people of God today is made up, of Gentiles. Now, this is important for us in a number of ways, but it's also helpful to see it biblically so. Remember, when God separated the nations at the Tower of Babel, He then started a line whereby He chose Abraham, and from Abraham, He was working in His covenant to bring forth the promised Savior. And it was in the administration of that old covenant that primarily The Jews, the literal blood descendants of Abraham, were brought to faith. Certainly not everyone, for there were apostates in his days, and subsequent to that in Moses' day, and even at Jesus' day. But primarily, you could see the activity of grace and salvation taking in the Jews. And yet, you see trickles of Gentiles coming in. You see Rahab the harlot brought in. You see others throughout the history of the Old Testament brought in and embracing the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, even at the birth of Christ, you see the narrative when he was but a young child, these wise Gentile rulers coming to worship him as a little testimony so clearly set before us that he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But look at today's scene, and it is difficult for us to come across those who are descendants of Abraham according to the flesh, who are believers in Christ Jesus. today's world, we hesitate to consider this theme because we've seen it so abused by those who go by the theological school of dispensationalism whereby they divide the people of God, the Jewish church, the Gentile church, and their view says that, yes, in the last days, the Jews will return, but it's that they'll return to God through the ceremonies. And so, blasphemously as it is to be said, there are those who say that the ceremonial worship will be reestablished in the temple. Can you imagine the abject profanity and blasphemy that would be. There is no, no chance that the Scriptures could conceive of such a thing because Christ is that sacrifice to which all of the Old Testament ceremonies were pointing. When He said it was finished, it is finished. It is instructive that the veil was ripped from the top to the bottom. And as we'll see here, that it is in the Lord's determined and providential purpose that He brought about the destruction of the temple. And it was at that moment that God was both judging impenitent and unbelieving Israel and turning for a long season primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to the Gentiles. And most today think that's how it ever shall be. But notice our text. There's the warning given in verse 20. When ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. For those of you who are students of history, you'll know that before the temple, before Jerusalem was destroyed, there was an initial coming up and surrounding of Jerusalem and then uh, retreating and moving back from. And many Christians, most notably, fled Jerusalem at that time, taking to heart the words of Christ and were delivered from the destruction that would come in the year A.D. 70. Notice verse 21, this guidance which they heeded. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the countries enter therein too. For these be the days of vengeance. Notice this word in verse 22. This explanation. That all things which are written may be fulfilled. We don't have time to go back. Many prophecies will come to your mind. But what Christ is saying is, this was long ago foretold. It was purposed by God that this day should come. And you'll remember, as we took up this section a few weeks back, we were indicating the purpose of the Lord in this, that this was sovereignly administered in accordance to His purpose. And Christ is confirming this again. And Notice in verse 23 when it says, Woe unto them that are with child, to them that, are, that give suck, so nursing mothers in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land. Wrath upon this people, they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. It's a striking fulfillment that over a million Jews were put to death in eighty 70. A million Over a million. And an additional 90 plus thousand were carried away captive. So you have a massive number of Jews indicating the fulfillment of these very words. May we say something in passing which ought to be settled deeply in our souls. The Word of God is historically true. It's not just religiously true. It is. It's not just spiritually true. It is. But the liberals of today and yesterday are wrong when they say, well, with history it can err and does err. No. We see again and again, the Word of God is true. But notice what Christ says in this text. That Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until... You see that simple word, until... Well, children, you know that word perhaps in various ways. Your parents say you need to sit down until I come back. And that time between your parents going to another room and coming back can seem quite long and difficult. But maybe you encourage yourself to say, well, they said until. They're going to come back. Well, that's the force of this word. That there is this heavy judgment against the Jews. But it's not the final word. It's not the final chapter. It's not all that the Jews shall experience. It's until, notice, the times, the seasons of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So God is testifying through Jesus Christ His eternal Son, our Lord, that there is a heavy and severe judgment against the Jews, tangibly shown in the overthrow of Jerusalem And it's remaining in ruins and occupied by Gentiles as it is still to this day. And the testimony is against them because of vengeance. This is why Paul says in Romans 11 that in one sense they're enemies for Christ's sake, for the Gospel's sake. That's not all they are. But it's right to acknowledge that because they stand opposed to Christ. And this is why there was such a heavy judgment as we'll see against the Jews. Christ, God, had so privileged them with generational witness of His gracious ways and promises and prophecies of the coming Messiah. And at the very moment when they should have launched themselves into His arms and to have embraced Him, they showed forth their true nature and they rejected the Messiah who had come. And that long standing promise. Can you think of this for a moment? We count ourselves to be vindicated, to be upset when we've told somebody, you know, for many days, this is what's going to happen. You need to be sure to do this, that, or the other thing. And we repeat it and we repeat it and we go over it and we go over it. We tell our children, you know, this is coming up on this day and so we need to make sure we're doing these things. And we're repeating those things, repeating those things. The day comes only to be discovered with great dismay. What they were supposed to do did not happen. And we become frustrated. For generations, God had been saying, the Messiah is coming. The Savior is coming. And now, for the period of His public ministry, sign after sign after sign after sign, pointing to Christ, saying, I am He that is promised to come. I am come. And think of the words of the majority of the Jews that were in Jerusalem What shall we do with Him who is called the King of the Jews? What's the reply? Crucify Him. Think of these haunting words. Let His blood be upon us and our children. If you need a warning against profane speech, look at the past 2,000 years. And realize that God brought to pass what they've sought. They ask, "Let their blood be upon us." And in fulfillment of His prophecies and His word, what comes to pass, the days of vengeance, which are written and are now being fulfilled. These are heavy things. But that one little word, until, holds out this small passage of expectation and hope. It's as if they're sealed up and all is dark. And it's the kind of darkness that you can't so much as see your hand in front of your eyes. And yet a pinhole breaks through and the faintest, faintest glimmer of light is there. Which testifies, yet there is hope. See, the destruction of the temple was a tangible indication that the Lord was turning from the Jews to the Gentiles, and yet it was in turning to the Gentiles for a time. We'll consider this truth, acknowledging that it's not absolute and comprehensive. As Paul says, there's still a remnant. Paul himself was a Jew. And you can go through history and see various Jews converted. But it is in proportion quite large that Gentiles make up the church of the Lord Jesus Christ while Jews ignore the way of salvation held forth to them. The Gospel is still to be preached first to the Jews, as Paul says and then to the Gentile, expecting and yearning that though a trickle, yet some few may come in. And yet we live presently in a day prophesied and fulfilled and being fulfilled, which is marked out by mercy to the Gentiles. So let's consider this truth in three ways. Firstly, looking at the biblical fact of this season. Secondly, the purpose of this season and lastly, the end of this season, all of which may make, help us make better sense of the Scripture's teaching and also raise up gratitude to God for His mercy to us, as well as quicken us to pray for this time of great blessing to the Jews to return. So, firstly, then, the biblical fact of the season. By the season, we mean the times of the Gentiles, the season that is to remain for a divinely determined length and duration. Well, notice as we consider this biblical fact that God had foretold there would be a turning from the Jews to the Gentiles. We see that stated, though not explicitly filled out, when Christ says, for instance, that, verse 22, all things which are written may be fulfilled. So, Christ is looking back to what we call the Old Testament and saying it's in the scriptures here. It tells us that these things are going to come the destruction of Jerusalem, the turning from the Jews to the Gentiles. Christ has mentioned this a bit more fully in the parallel in Matthew chapter 21. So you can turn there and see this a bit more clearly, perhaps. Matthew chapter 21 and at verse 42. Here Jesus says to them, "...did ye never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken." But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Notice the Pharisees perceived, verse 46, that He spake of them. So Christ is with tremendous clarity saying, this is the fact. The kingdom is going to be taken from you Jews and it's going to be given to the Gentiles. A nation, He says, that will bring forth the fruits thereof. Well, notice, you can see some of this. Again, it makes a rich study to trace this throughout the Scriptures. We obviously don't have time for such a thing, but you can see it in Isaiah chapter 60. Notice at verse 1. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee, and His glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. You can trace this through these chapters and you'll see it again and again emphasized. You'll see just a glimpse of it in Psalm, or Isaiah 65, verse 1. I am sought of them that asked not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, behold me, behold me. A nation unto a nation that was not called by my name. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, which walketh in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. A people that provoketh me to anger continually to my face, that sacrificeth in gardens and burneth incense upon altars of brick. And oh, it goes on testifying of the terrible. Reality of rebelling against God testifies here. You see it. Here, Gentiles are coming. Jews are turning from. And Christ says, I will take it from you and I will give it to them. Well, Brethren, right now, historically, we stand in that season where the kingdom of God which was administered under the Old Covenant preeminently and primarily to the Jews has been gathered up away from them and has now been preeminently and primarily presented to the Gentiles. So we ought to think of this for a moment. The fact that you as a Gentile are in Christ's church is of a sovereign purpose of grace. You know, if you go back far enough, you know, there's this fad of ancestry.com and so on and the interest in DNA. And it's strange that white Caucasian Americans should wonder that they're European and that others should find out all of these things and do these tests and be astounded that that's where they're from. But if you go back far enough, this is what you'll find your ancestors to be. Everyone in this room, abject pagans. That's your bloodline. Your bloodline comes from those who hated God. Your bloodline comes from those, black, white, doesn't matter, who were idolaters. You go back far enough, and you'll find people who reveled in all manner of wickedness, gross sins, idolatry, who are bowing down to idols, giving of their substance to support wood, hay, and stubble. This is your line. This is the fact. And yet, wonder of wonders, God knowing this all the way, turns to the Gentiles with the Gospel of Reconciliation, which you see chronicled in its initial phase throughout the book of Acts. And so you see one, as it were, last heavy push to preach to the Jews, to commend them to Christ, and to commend Christ to them. And yet, they largely reject. Not all, but largely. Whereas the Gentiles are being brought in. And they're fleeing to Christ. And so you read the early epistles. You see it in Thessalonians, the first of Paul's epistles to them how he testifies that they turn from idols to the true and living God. Well, that's because of what's taking place here. God is turning to the Gentiles. He's bringing the Gospel which has been proclaimed to Abraham and to Abraham's seed. And they have proved themselves haters of God, haters of Christ. And he's been, the, see, the Gospel has been gathered up and is now being proclaimed to the Gentiles doesn't mean in any sense that the Gentiles are worthy of it. That's not the point at all. It's not that the Jews are unworthy, the Gentiles are. It's that the Jews had spurned and continue to spurn His mercies made known to them in the Scriptures and in the coming of Christ. And there is an end to the long-suffering of God. Paul makes that point, by the way, to the Gentiles, doesn't he? Don't boast yourself and think, well, we, you know, we're standing, they've fallen. He rather reproves and says, you need to take heed, lest you take part in the same sins. This is why, though it's a season for the Gentiles coming in, that we are earnest to implore our children not just to be raised up in the covenant, but to embrace the Christ of the covenant. Because if they fail to do so, you see where they stand. They stand in greater alignment with other covenant breakers who presently are under a curse. So this transfer was foretold, and what comes to pass is blindness to Israel. You see this, for instance, stated so explicitly by Paul in Second Corinthians and chapter three, Second Corinthians chapter 3, which helps make sense of what we see today. It's astounding, isn't it? We read in Isaiah 53, among other places, and say, how is it possible? I mean, really, how is it possible that someone can look at Isaiah 53 and not see it's Christ? How is it possible that someone can read through and sing through Psalm 22 and not see the specific and the particular fulfillment of these precise things foretold, fulfilled in Christ. How is it possible? It's possible because of judgment. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And there at verse 13. Moses put a veil over his face that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. So he's borrowing from that history In the Pentateuch, notice he says, their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. It's a veil that blinds them. They have been given opportunity to see, and they with their children have largely said, we're not going to turn to it. And so now God puts a veil over them, the eyes of their understanding. It's true, of course, that by nature as fallen children of Adam, all of us are spiritually blinded. But this is a heightening and a judicial judgment of God against the Jews. This is why Paul says, For the Gospel's sake, they are your enemies. That's not all they are. But in that sense, they are. God is judging them. God is blinding them. God is keeping them from seeing so clearly what is so clearly set before us in the Scriptures. So in other words, it's not just their native depravity as all sinners, but it is as well a judgment of God that when the Torah, the Scriptures of the Old Testament is read they are blinded to ever perceiving what is so patently plain. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the promised Messiah. You read through Matthew and you see prophecy, 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 fulfilled, 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 fulfilled. Again and again. So that anyone should be able to see this is utterly impossible unless Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. For anyone to deny that is only to show forth that they are spiritually blind. Well, to the Jews, that is a judicial blinding of God. Notice Romans chapter 11, as we read earlier, to which we'll return again in a moment after this. Romans chapter 11, and there at verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery lest ye should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Notice that expression, in part, seemingly allows for then what Paul earlier stated, that there's a remnant that come. But also, it's more purposed toward this fact that there will be a day when the blindness is removed until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So the biblical fact of this season is as foretold of God in judgment against Israel by which He blinds them to the truth of the Messiah. They are left to wander in darkness upholding and maintaining some outward form of religion and yet Ultimately, blind to the basic truth of what the Old Testament speaks of. So, Paul says so simply in 2 Timothy 3 the Holy Scriptures are able to make us wise unto salvation, which is by faith in Christ Jesus. Children, parents, you should know this and teach your children. The Scriptures of the Old Testament are Scriptures about salvation by faith in Christ Jesus. It's not a New Testament teaching, that is a biblical teaching from the beginning. And so, when you teach the Old Testament to your children, you should be teaching them as they testify of salvation by faith in Christ Jesus. Christ the Messiah, prophet, priest, king. Jesus the Savior who saves us from our sins. All of the Old Testament in one way or another is bringing us to that conclusion. The New Testament happens to be first the historical display that it is Jesus Christ of Nazareth who is that Christ. And then the epistles testifying with greater clarity of how all of these things relate. But be clear to understand that the Bible, the whole Bible, is a Bible that testifies of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, many erred under the Old Covenant. But this is not because of a fault in the Old Covenant, but because of both a willful and a judicial hardening of hearts. Well what does this lead to, but as Christ says in Luke 24, or 21, verse 24, that now the times of the Gentiles are here. So you see this gradual taking, gradually taking place in the book of Acts. So there's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. It's wrong for us to say, "Where's your Jerusalem?" No, it's not about that. We don't say well my Jerusalem is my household and my Judea is my neighborhood and my Samaria is you know my state and then the uttermost part of the world is the rest of the world. That's a historical statement. The gospel starts in Jerusalem and it spreads to Judea, it goes to Samaria and it expands to the uttermost parts of the world. It's a display of where God is moving. And that's what happens in the book of Acts. You see it Pentecost Jerusalem, boom. It explodes. And what happens? People from all sorts of nations are hearing the gospel in their own language and they're coming to faith. And you see this pressure that comes upon Judea and it engulfs Samaria and it expands throughout the nations. What's going on is God is fulfilling His purpose to the nations. He's gathering in the nations now, which were an idolatrous darkness and heathenish behavior who worshipped a lie, who did all sorts of defilement with the body and wickedness of their actions, and yet God now is gathering them in. And at one and the same time, He's as it were closing the door largely to the Jews with all of their long-standing heritage, with all of their seeming reverence to the Torah still, and yet they are most irreverent or the Messiah. This is a biblical fact. But what's the purpose? Secondly, the Scriptures tell us several things about this which we can touch on. The first is that this purpose is not only to judge and discipline the Jews, but it is to awaken and provoke the Jews. Now we know this in simple ways within a family. So we do things with a child who's, you know, mishandling a toy or not sharing it. And what do we do? We take it away from them. We say this is going to be taken away from you and you need to learn how to handle things better, right? And they really want that. And so they're being provoked as it were to consider their misbehavior so that they would turn to right behavior. It's much more than behaviorism here though. Notice we read earlier in Romans chapter 11, notice specifically Verse 11, Paul says, have have they stumbled that they should fall? What's he saying? Is it finished with the Jews? Is it all over for the Jews? Is it just now going to be this remnant, this small trickle of the Jews? And notice what Paul says, God forbid! In other words, this isn't the last chapter for the Jews. It's not that there's just going to be this little trickle of several Jews here and a few Jews there and several others down the road. It will be that way for a season. But notice he says, through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles, the nations, for to provoke them to jealousy. To make them see, what have we done? We have spurned our God, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, who has promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the Messiah would come. We've spurned that great king David and David's seed. We have taken this treasury of God's light and we've twisted and contorted it into some works righteousness approach to godliness. You can go to uh, the uh, Holocaust Museum here in St. Louis. Not the National, but you can go to that one. You can go to the one here in St. Louis. And occasionally, there are Christians who lead that tour, which is astounding. And the connections they can make. But on one such occasion, a Jew led that. And they started with this display of here's what the Passover is. and Here are the different things that we do. This little display of that. And asking them, saying trying to promote some spiritual thought. Well, what is the Passover about? And here's the answer I received from a descendant of Abraham. It's an opportunity for us to make ourselves better. That's it. It's an opportunity for us to improve. It's a time for us to reflect, think what we've done wrong, and then turn and improve ourselves. That's the message that at least that Jew understood. Can you not see how there's judicial blinding there? Because if you read the Scriptures, what's the message of the Passover? The blood of a substitute must be applied if there's any hope of acceptance with God. It has nothing to do with us reflecting and making ourselves better. That follows the grace of God. But it's not the central message of the Passover. What will happen, can you imagine it, when this season turns And descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when they come to realize all of those promises of our patriarchs, all of those promises recorded, all of those mercies of the God of heaven and earth toward our forefathers have been misrepresented, rejected, and spurned by us. And we, with our mouths and actions, have denied the just and holy one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our forefathers not only were idolaters, But we cried out for the death of Him who is the Son of God incarnate, the Promised One, the Savior of sinners. What will happen? But that they will see, oh, the agony and oh, the blessedness of God to the Gentiles. Is there yet hope for me? That's what Paul's getting at. That God would provoke them To make them see what they have cast out. To make them see what they have chosen. It's not dissimilar to what God says to the Jews no less. When He says, look at what you've done. You've hewed out for yourselves cisterns, broken cisterns which can hold no water, while I, the fountain of living water, am held forth to you. It's not unlike the prodigal son who takes the inheritance and spends it and finds himself in filth, and then he comes and says, what am I doing? The servants of my Father have it better than I. That's what's being done. God is bringing them low. You say, well, this seems like a really long time of judgment. It is short compared to what all Christ rejectors deserve just as He was long in dealing with the idolatry of the Gentiles before starting to bring them in more fully, He is teaching the descendants of Abraham how precious the blood of the Messiah is that they've called to be in judgment upon themselves and their descendants. Fundamentally, this is to draw them to Christ. Time to look at all the prophecies. If you see it in context, Zechariah 12 and 13 are preeminently about this fact. Yes, it has some semblance. The fountain is open for sin and uncleanness and so on. And even for the Jews of that day. But it's particularly looking for the outpouring of the Spirit in latter days of refreshment when the Jews will then mourn and they will look upon Him whom they pierced and mourn. And they will cry out, O God, deliver us from the judgment we deserve. They will be provoked. But there's also a purpose in this season to gather in and convert the nations. That's what Paul says in Romans 11, verse 12, when he says, If the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them, the Jews, The riches of the Gentiles, you see, the Lord turns from the Jews in order to prosper His kingdom to the Gentiles. And this is what's going on right now throughout the nations. God is largely gathering in the Gentiles. And yet, as we'll see perhaps on another occasion, should the Lord give us opportunity, it's still, apart from certain seasons of revival, a small gathering but the Romans 11 holds forth the hope that there will be an outpouring that will both bring in the Jews and there will be a surge to the nations gathering them in together. But when once the Jews were judged, Jerusalem destroyed, the temple broken down, and God turns providentially to the Gentiles, he's not just provoking The Jews to jealousy. He's doing so by converting the nations that they are drawn to whom? To the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. It's not as if God says, Well, I'm not God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. No, no, I'm now the God of the Gentiles. That's not it. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is now turning to the Gentiles whom the Jews by culture and custom had learned to despise. You remember Peter's struggle when the sheet is lowered down and God says, rise, slay, and eat? Nay, Lord, I've never done this. I I won't do what's unclean. He says, call not unclean what I call clean. Do you know what Peter learns? He doesn't just learn that it's okay to eat you know, pork and other things of that sort, he learns that that line of demarcation between Jew and Gentile is now finished. And so he has liberty to eat with and be with the Gentiles. Because he says, when Cornelius, you know, I see that the Lord is opening now to the Gentiles. And at that moment, you see this massive switch on the hinge of history where, therefore, there's a massive work among the Gentiles. No Coincidence that Paul is converted and is going forth and preaching to the Gentiles. What's happening? The Gentiles are being brought in. He's converting the nations. But he's doing so all the while causing the Jews to see what they have left behind. Thirdly, the end of this season, Christ says, "...till..." And so it's this will happen, he says, till the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. What's he getting at? Well, that there is a regathering that will happen. Now, brethren, this is what was mentioned earlier in the larger catechism. We're asked, what do we pray for in the second petition, thy kingdom come? Among other things, we pray that the Gospel will be propagated throughout the world, the Jews called, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in. It's not a dispensational teaching. It's a Reformed teaching. Likewise, in our directory of public worship, we have in the time of public prayer that the ministers to pray for the propagation of the Gospel, for the conversion of the Jews, and for the fullness of the Gentiles. These are things that our forefathers discerned in Scripture and set forth with great clarity. The Geneva Bible of 1599 comments on Romans 11 and says, it shall come to pass that when the Jews come to the Gospel, the world, as it were, will come and quicken again and rise up from death to life. It's not just... That, you know, Gentiles than Jews, but when the Jews do come again, there will be an effusion of blessing to the advance of God's praise. Notice you can see this in Romans 11 very quickly, verse 12. The fall of them is riches, the diminishing of them, riches. How much more their fullness when they're gathered in. They're cut off now, but when they're gathered in, what then shall it be to the world? McShane and Andrew Bonner, when they went through, in uh, their mission to the Jews, they were earnest in thinking not only to think about you know, these Jews need Christ, but they saw if the Jews are converted, they'll become the best ambassadors for Christ. And that's scripturally confirmed. When they're brought back in, there's an eruption of advance of God's praise. There's an eruption of conversion. You see this in the Minor Prophets again and again, you know, Ten will lay hold of the skirt of one that goes up and says, "You know, pray for us, let us go up with you. There's a revival that comes in these things. Romans 11.15 The casting away of them be the reconciling of the world. What shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? Don't you dare say, well, what shall the receiving of the elect be? Because it's so foreign to this passage. Of course, the elect are those who are saved. Elect Jews, elect Gentiles. But here it's the contrast of Jew and Gentile. And when the Jews who have been cast away are now reconciled and received, it will be life from the dead. Flourishing of gospel grace and glory to God. Notice as well, In verse 25, "...I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in." That's what Christ is speaking of. The season of the Gentiles. When that fullness happens, then there will be the veil lifted from the hearts of the Jews They'll be coming. And that's not the end because there will be a massive embrace of Christ from the nations as well. We can remember perhaps those of us who heard Reverend Morris Roberts preach on this on one conference and using the imagery, one day there will be the turning on of the news and reports issuing throughout the world, Jews are coming to Christ. We don't know when it will be. We don't know what time it will be. We don't know what media and Machinery and uh, various forms of communication will be, but His point is sound. It will be historically noticed. It will be relevant and open to our eyes that there will be a large embrace of the Jews such as the Geneva Bible says that, it will be, that they will be quickened again and rise up from death to life. What does all of this do? It doesn't just excite us to pray. It should. You should be excited to pray for the Jews. You should be excited to think what happens if but one is converted. Maybe it's not the fullness of time and so on yet, but oh, that these would be spared and brought in. All of this is a magnifying of God's sovereign grace and faith in Jesus Christ. That's what's happening in this scene. This is a tangible display that it is by God's grace through faith in Christ. The Jews sought to seek it by works of the law. They were cut off because they denied Christ and faith in Him. The Gentiles, as Paul and others say, sought it by faith and they were embraced. Notice 2 Corinthians 3.16 speaking of Jews, when it shall turn to the Lord. Romans 11.30 It was their unbelief. Romans 11, verse 20, they were broken because of unbelief. Unbelief is the central sin. Belief is that which delineates between saved and unsaved. And what God is doing is orchestrating in this theater of creation and history that it is by faith in Jesus Christ that sinners are saved. If you are saved, it is because of faith in Him. And all of this will redound to the glory of God alone. Romans 11, oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. So when Christ says that this will happen until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, it tells us of God's sovereign grace magnifying faith in Christ. Why were the Jews cut off? They rejected Christ. Why are the Gentiles being brought in? They trust in Christ. But why is all of that the case? Because God has sovereignly administered these things accordingly. And at the end of the ages, we will join with wonder at how God has orchestrated this in time throughout all nations, gathering people to do what? To embrace Jesus Christ. You see, Christ is central to this. He is the One who the history of the world hinges upon. The turning of the Jews away is because of faith in Christ or unbelief in Christ. The bringing of the Gentiles is because of faith in Christ. When the Jews return, it's by faith in Christ. And when there's the fullness to the nations, it's because of faith in Christ. All of this outpouring is to the exalting of Christ, His work, His uh, atoning sacrifice, and it is by faith in Him, So the end of this season is not only this great reviving work of God, but it is a magnifying of His grace through faith in Christ, that Christ may be all and in all. Well, brethren, as we close, here is a cause of wondering at the awful judgment against the awful sin of unbelief. The Jews largely kept the Sabbath day. Outwardly, of course. Not spiritually, it seems. But they were free from many scandals. They were free from many other sins that are scandalous today. But they rejected faith in Christ. And they were cut off. Take heed, as Paul says, lest you become partaker of their judgment by rejecting faith in Christ. But preeminently, ought it not to be one of gratitude that hits us that God found it his grace and mercy, not to say, well, the Jews have rejected me, therefore I'm done because the Gentiles are idolaters. But instead, he turns to the Gentiles with the message of grace and says, To you now do I extend my overtures. To you now do I appeal. To you now do I hold forth Christ, the Savior of sinners. To you now do I turn and say, Come unto Me and be saved. You and I have reason to rejoice that in judging the Jews, He did not bring the gavel down against the Gentiles for all time and eternity, but rather has been pleased to extend to us the message of Christ So brethren, as you give thanks to God for His sovereign and historical work, we ought also to remember the Jews in prayer. This is why the larger catechism says it. This is why our ministers are reminded to pray for the conversion of the Jews and the Gentiles and so on. Because God has yet a purpose for them. Do you remember how when the times were nearing for the appearance of Christ in His incarnation There were people that are found looking for the coming of Christ. And they were yearning for the coming of Christ. Brethren, here's something that stands for us to yearn for. Yearning for the conversion of the Jews. Praying for the conversion of the Jews. Seeking out the conversion of the Jews. It may be that we don't have much access to them. It may be that they despise what we would have to say to them. But surely God does not despise what we have to say to Him about it. Surely God is delighted when we come and say, "Oh God, raise up a witness to the Jews and be pleased to gather them in that Jew and Gentile united in Christ in one holy, Catholic, apostolic church would ever worship the one true Savior of Jew and Gentile. What a blessing, brethren, to consider. Though there is but few presently who come of the Jews. There is a day coming when there will be many, and that will be an expansion to the Gentiles again, all to the glory of God. Well, Let us be much in prayer that God would magnify His grace through Jesus Christ in saving both Jew and Gentile. Stand with me as we seek His blessing.